This lecture is sponsored jointly by the Marshall Center, the Department of Political Science at the University of Richmond, and the Hesburgh Lecture Series. The Hesburgh Lecture is inspired by the late Father Hesburgh of the University of Notre Dame, who left a legacy of lifelong learning, which uh, our speaker talked a little bit about uh, earlier. Since 1986, lectures by Notre Dame faculty have been showcased, have showcased the depth and breadth of the university's academic expertise and research and teaching. The series furthers the mission of the Notre Dame Alumni Association to provide meaningful continuing education opportunities to Notre Dame alumni and their friends. It is a tradition of local Notre Dame clubs to collaborate with a local institution nearby and invite people to the Hesburgh Lecture Series. We are grateful to Kevin Buckley and to Brittany Dunperio of the Richmond Notre Dame Club for working with us to bring this lecture to the University of Richmond tonight. And we especially welcome members of the Notre Dame Alumni Club who are here this evening as well. I will now turn to my colleague, Dr. Kevin Cherry, Associate Professor of Political Science and a PhD from Notre Dame to introduce our speaker, who will talk for about 20 minutes and will be available for a few questions. Dr. Cherry. As Dr. Palazzolo said, I'm wearing a couple of hats here tonight. Uh, as a spider, I would like to thank the University of Notre Dame and the Notre Dame Club of Richmond for its sponsorship of the Hexburg Lecture Series. As a domer, I'd like to thank the Department of Political Science and the John Marshall Center for the Study of International Statesmanship at the Jepson School of Leadership Studies. And I've heard that some people have occasionally exaggerated the size of crowds at their events. <laughs> I'm looking out and I think that that's definitely not the case here tonight. Uh, and I think the reason for that is our guest, Professor Josh Kaplan of the Department of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. He did his undergraduate work at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and his graduate work at the University of Chicago. He has taught at Notre Dame since 1987, which is the same year that they hired Hall of Fame women's basketball coach Muffet McGraw. <laughs> he is the author and narrator of Political Theory, the classic texts and their continuing relevance, and The People on the Ballot, A History of American Political Parties. A dedicated teacher, he has taught a variety of courses at the university, covering a wide range of topics, from Plato to rational choice theory, and the novellas of Herman Melville to Southern politics. So we hope you enjoy your stay here in Richmond. Thousands of first-year students have taken his Introduction to American Government course. Notre Dame's student body presented him with the Frank O'Malley Undergraduate Teaching Award in 2006. He received the Canab Awards for Excellence in Teaching in 2000 and in 2006. He also received Notre Dame's Edmund P. Joyce Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching in 2009 and in 2016, and the Doc Weiler Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Advising in 2012. He clearly has a passion for teaching. While working in the departmental office at Notre Dame in my last year there, I had the opportunity to observe Professor Kaplan interacting with students. He consistently displayed both patience and kindness. Students, as I have learned, appreciate and remember that, which is one of the reasons I think so many of his former students turned out tonight. He also displayed much more organization than a political theorist ever should. <laughs> and, and one of the few regrets I have about my time at Notre Dame was not serving as a teaching assistant for him. My fellow graduate students reported that he was an outstanding lecturer 
able to translate the intricate details of complicated text to an undergraduate class without losing either their attention or the text's nuances. And in organizing tonight's lecture, I saw enough correspondence from alumni to confirm these reports. Professor Kaplan left a deep impression on his students, sparking their interest in government and encouraging them to think more carefully about the problems we encounter in political life. And tonight he will speak about what some believe to be one of those problems, the Electoral College. Please join me in welcoming Professor Josh Kaplan of the University of Notre Dame. I will never get a better introduction in my life. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you very much. Sometimes we begin with our principles and our reason and our political positions and party preferences flow from that. Sometimes it works the other way around. Sometimes we begin with a preconceived sense this is what we think, and therefore, this is my position on this issue. The Electoral College has gone from being, a, in a sense, a kind of technicality in the way we elect presidents to a contentious and a partisan political issue. All of the Democratic presidential hopefuls are trashing it. Republicans are defending it. My purpose tonight is not to debate the Electoral College, the pros and cons with you, and I'm not here to persuade you this is good, that's bad. Rather, I want to think through with you, want to explore the consequences of Electoral College reforms that have been proposed you're going to encounter these arguments, oh, we should do this, we should do that. And this is one of the topics in politics that is more complicated than it sounds. And all of the proposals come with consequences that we can foresee, and they will surely come with consequences that we can't foresee. So this evening, again, I want to explore with you some of the possible consequences of the various ways we might reform the Electoral College. And you notice the subtitle is, or the title, be careful what you wish for. Now, my own thoughts on the Electoral College, and, and um, I don't want anybody to think the way I do. It, it, I just. I just don't. Um, but, so I'll, but I'll tell you, my own thoughts on the Electoral College, it, it takes about 90 seconds to, to go over this. And, but this is where I'm coming from with it. If we somehow, if we were starting over and we lost our copy of the Constitution and we had to say, okay, okay, um, got to elect the president, how should that work? I think it's safe to say that even the staunchest defender of the Electoral College would not come up with that if we were starting over. <laughs> uh, so so uh, uh, imagine, imagine it's like, hey, I've got an idea. We'll have the election, and 
people will vote for who they want to vote for. And then we'll have, oh, let's say 538 people, and they'll do whatever they want. Like, heck yes. Why didn't I think of that? Uh, so I, I don't think that if we were starting over, we would d do that. However, you know the expression, the devil you know. Um, all of the reform proposals, because what we're talking about is a procedure for voting. No procedure is neutral. All procedures have biases. And all of the proposals come with their own package of consequences, biases, and odd things that could happen, um, many of which might be worse than what we have now. Let's, I'll just uh, put it that way. But um, let me just walk you through some of these, and you can decide for yourself. We're going to look at and consider four possible reform proposals. Here's what they are, and we're just going to walk through them uh, one, one by one. Let me start, though, by going over with you briefly how the Electoral College works. And I'm doing this not because I don't think you know how the Electoral College works, uh, but uh, just to highlight a few features that I'm going to refer to later. Let's start with just the most basic thing about the Electoral College. We know that uh, each state gets a certain number of electoral votes, and the candidate who wins in that state uh, in 48 of the states gets all uh, of that state's electoral votes. So basic, basic thing, and you probably learned this when you were in grade school, how many electoral votes does each state get? Well, it's the number of representatives plus the number of senators. That means each state has a minimum of three. The maximum is determined by the, a cap on the total number. Um, about 110 years ago, the House of Representatives said um, 435 is enough. And they capped the total size of the House at 435. Every 10 years, the Constitution requires the government to conduct a census. It's on the zeros. And then in the year following the census, there's uh, what's called reapportionment, where based on population shifts, there's an algorithm that determines how many representatives each state gets with a minimum of one. Mathematically, what this means, and, and I'll expand on it a little bit, what, what, mathematically what it means is that at some point, the ratio of the population to the number of electors gets wacky. Um, so I'll be, uh, is that a problem? We'll get to that in a minute. 538, that number ought to be 535, shouldn't it? Where, where are the other three? DC. DC, they get, they don't get representation, but they get uh, electoral votes. We have several small states uh, listed here. Largest, so the largest number of electoral votes that any state has is uh, 55. 
and there's some swing states that are Iowa's small. They're somewhere in the middle. One of the complaints that people make about the Electoral College is the big state, small state problem. And they, people make both of these arguments at the same time. Small states have too much influence. Big states have too much influence. They have influence in different ways. We're talking about the mathematical ratio. Um, the average, and, and that, that number is a little out of date, the uh, 580,000 people per electoral vote. It's a little bit higher than that. That's about the average, but if you look at the, the ratio in Wyoming, it's, it's different. Um, and in the large states, it takes more people to produce an electoral vote. Now, the idea here, the criticism, is that this unfairly advantages voters in small states. They have more influence than voters in uh, large states. Now, I've never, I've never known anyone from Wyoming who thinks they have more influence than someone from California. And, I mean, do you, do you, I'm not going to tell you what to think, but the, what you would be saying, I just think Delaware has too much influence. And that those people in Delaware, you know, they're skewing the election results. But anyway, that's, that's mathematically, like, it's, it's, it's not, the ratio is not, is not even. Even if the electoral votes were apportioned or divided up more proportionally, Donald Trump still would have won. He would have lost three uh, uh, electoral votes. So this is not, it, the argument is not that this skews the election results. The strongest argument would be that, um, and, and, and again, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a couple of weeks ago said, the Electoral College is affirmative action for rural voters, meaning that it kind of amplifies uh, th their influence. So that, that, that's the idea. The idea behind the, the criticism the Electoral College favors big states is that candidates will go to big states and campaign there because when you, when you are in your electoral strategy, you're collecting states. This is like Moneyball in politics. You could have a hitter that, with a 333 batting average that costs this much money, or you could get two batters that uh, have a more modest batting average that cost a lot of money, and you have the same production out of them. There are a few minor anomalies that states with the same number of electoral votes might have different populations. Um, and then there's a kind of cutoff where the difference between you and the next state above you, um, there's, another, there's another bias in the Electoral College, and that is the Electoral College 
favors candidates whose support is geographically concentrated. And one of the reasons that I'm using PowerPoint, which um, some of this is just visual, there are a lot of numbers here. Two elections, 1968, George Wallace got 13% of the popular vote, but 46 electoral votes. Ross Perot, who died earlier this year, got 19% of the popular vote. That's almost one in five voters, but got no electoral votes. Why this disparity? Any hands? Yeah, he, his support was geographically concentrated and it was enough to win certain states. And the, the way it works with um, uh, most states is um, it's a plurality, not a majority, but a plurality in that state. You get one more vote than your opponent, you get all of the, uh, that state's electoral votes. This is called the winner-take-all system. And so the winner-take-all system is um, uh, one of the targets of some of the, the, the re reform proposals. First reform plan that I want to mention is the automatic plan. The idea behind the automatic plan is that we would keep electoral votes but eliminate the people, that is, the electors. Every state gets the same number but we don't actually have the people. Now, the Electoral College is not a place. It's a, it's a process. Um, uh, I, I, I was sort of disappointed to discover that they don't actually meet in Washington, D.C. in November, but they meet in their state and they send in the number. What would be the advantage of the Electoral College? It would eliminate the potential problem of the faithless elector, which I'll talk about in a second. One of the consequences is that it would require a constitutional amendment. That is, the Constitution is pretty specific in spelling, these are people. Uh, and so to change that, you would require a, a constitutional con uh, amendment. When I talk about the consequences or the, uh, yeah, the consequences of the reform proposals, I'm talking about how it would actually change just the mechanism of this, but then also the broader question of the consequences for party strategy, party platforms, and uh, American, the American system more generally. The Constitution does, as, as I mentioned, doesn't require the electors to vote the way the people vote. There are some safeguards in the process, that is, if a Republican wins that state's, uh, it wins in that state, the party chooses the electors. Uh, so there's a, uh, some mechanism built in to increase the likelihood, but it's not required. Some states have laws, some parties have rules, but the penalties are so minor um, that they don't, wouldn't really hold um, anyone to this. Now, I'm waiting for, I don't know, Bill Clinton and James Patterson 
to write a suspense novel, about, and, and I've got the title for the book. It's called The Faithless Elector, right? I would, I would, I would read it. Um, in all of American history, there have only been uh, 167 faithless electors. So this, just as the Electoral College has not worked the way it was probably originally intended to work, uh, this is the editorial, fortunately, uh, but the, the potential for a faithless elector has turned out to be inconsequential. Candidates have died. Uh, there were only 67 in all of American history who actually voted for someone other than the person who won, the candidate who won in that state. However, 2016 was kind of raised the possibility of a bigger potential problem. In fact, there were 10 faithless electors. They were, the choices were a little goofy, uh, and, and I don't mean anything against those candidates, but um, Well, you can see, three Bernie supporters didn't give up, three for Colin Powell, John Kasich, Ron Paul. Um, I've lived through a number of elections, but last November, or November 2016, I heard an argument that I'd never heard in my life uh, and that is, uh, and this was in editorials and, and all where people were arguing now is the time for the Electoral College to stand up. This is why it was created. This is our last chance. Please stop that man. Do the right thing and vote for anybody except Donald Trump. So, It could happen. It could happen. So the automatic plan would eliminate the possibility of the faithless elector. On the other end of the spectrum in terms of, but, but that's all it would change. It would just change that, that little aspect of it. On the other end of the spectrum in, in terms of the dramatic change would be direct election. This would be the biggest difference to the current system. It would eliminate the possibility that the winner of the popular vote would lose the electoral vote. I used to speak of that as a hypothetical. Mathematically, it's possible. Um, enough said. Um, <laughs> it would require a constitutional amendment because it's, you'd have to really scrap everything that the Constitution says about presidential elections. What would the other possible consequences look like? In a sense, the United States would look more like the rest of the world. You would see more third-party candidates. The Electoral College is one of the institutional features in American government that discourages third parties because, you know, it, it's like, was it Ricky Bobby's second is nothing? 
you would surely see third-party candidates who would be in a position then to influence the election, the outcome. Uh, in the event that a candidate doesn't get a majority. Now, if you did the direct election, you could either say the uh, election requires a majority or say 40%. To win, you have to hit 40%. But with third-party candidates, several other candidates outside the two major parties would make it more difficult to reach the 40 or 50%. And so you would you know, greatly increase the chance that no candidate would get a majority. Now, this is not necessarily the end of the world. In France, there's an election, and then they have another election a few weeks later, just with the, with the top two candidates. In between, there's some wheeling and dealing. Again, it's not like, I mean, it's, it's probably a little less crazy than the Electoral College itself, but not the end of the world. However, imagine how this would play out. Imagine who would the third party candidates be? What kind of third party are we talking about? I'll let you use your imagination uh, on that. Now, it would also, and this is something else I want you to think about, how would you campaign differently if there were a direct election? Now, um, Donald Trump, after the election, when people would pester him and say, you didn't win the popular vote, he said, if we had a direct election, I would have won by even more. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but there's no question that when we are talking about a reform like this, you don't keep everything the same and then change the thing at the end. You change the whole, so it's not like we're gonna rewind and re redo 2016. Everything is the same, except we're gonna change the rule at the end and at the very end, go with the winner of the popular vote. Once you know it's the winner of the popular vote, everything else changes. You change where you campaign, how you campaign, who you appeal to, the parties change their platforms because, again, it's money ball. You're putting together the pieces differently. So, um, Republicans would campaign in California, Democrats would campaign in Texas, and if you're a candidate, you're gonna go where the voters are. I have this amount of money to spend, I'm gonna hit the major media markets. And so I'm gonna go after people I don't go after at all now. So would it change the urban-rural balance in, in influence? You just look at the numbers. Um, and it might not, but again, if you are a Republican and there's direct election, I can get a whole lot of votes in places where I don't even try under the current system. And you're think, thinking the same thing if you're a Democrat. Now, I talked about France and the orderly kind of thing. The Constitution 
spells out a procedure, what happens if no candidate gets a majority? What happens? Well, the election goes to the House, and the House of Representatives decides. Now, you're thinking, well, the Democrats or the Republicans, whoever has the majority in the House. But there's a little tweak in how this works. The election is decided by the House. There's a vote by the states in the House, but each state gets one vote. And so it would come down to probably which party has the majority of representatives from that state. So you're already thinking, just imagine what this would look like. Just, just, just. Election goes to the House. Potential for, for deals when George Wallace ran for president, he didn't expect to win, but his hope was to deny victory to either Nixon or Humphrey, and then he would be in a position to make a deal. He could tell Hubert Humphrey, like, Hubert, I can make you president. However, that civil rights stuff that you've been working on since 1948, there are gonna be some changes. So like, how bad do you want it? And he would say to Richard Nixon, I can make you president, this is what I want in return. So funny things could happen with that kind of deal making, and that's what happens in multi-party systems. To build a majority coalition, you have to bargain with parties with a little bit of support because you have to put together a majority. Okay. Election goes to the House, each state gets one. Currently, so what would it, what would it look like now? Currently, the Republicans have a majority of representatives in 26 states. And let, re, let me remind you, we have 50 states. So it's 26. Democrats have majorities uh, that, you know what I'm talking about, the majority of uh, representatives from that state. Democrats have majorities in 22 states, and there's a tie in Michigan and Pennsylvania, equal number of Republicans and Democrat, uh, de Democratic senators. There were only a few states where, again, if we looked at 2016, there were only a few states where, let's say, Donald Trump won that state, but they have more Democratic representatives. Arizona, Iowa, Florida, there's a little bitty Republican majority, 14 to 13. In the upcoming congressional races next year, Michigan might flip to majority Democrat. Florida might flip to majority Democrat. Pennsylvania might flip to majority. Then we have a tie, 25-25. What do we do then? I don't know. I don't know. Does it, I, don't, I don't believe the Constitution says what happens if there's a tie there. Uh, it could happen. Um, I, I mentioned this. 
third-party candidates. Um, I, I'm looking forward to the comment and question uh, period where you can share your views on what, what, what that might look like. The next plan is called the proportional plan. There are two versions of it, but basically you do away with the winner-take-all system and you divide up the electoral votes in a given state roughly in proportion to the popular vote in that state. It makes the electoral vote more closely reflect the popular vote. So if candidate A wins 60% of the popular vote, presumably they would win 60% of the electoral votes rather than, than all of them. It lessens some distortions in the winner-take-all system. However, it could introduce some distortions of its own and could even reverse some election results, which is what we're talking about in the first place, why we want to reform uh, the Electoral College. There, as a kind of preview of what I'm going to show next, you could do it proportionally in two ways. You could say, all right, we're going to, and actually there, there are like four ways, but two, two, two main ways. You could do it, say, okay, 60-40, we do it kind of roughly, so that's proportional population. There's a second proportional plan that's called the Congressional District Plan. Remember, I made a big point of telling you what you already knew about how many electoral votes each state gets, number of congressmen plus the number of senators. Well, how tidy? Because you could say, well, whoever, whichever presidential candidate wins in a particular congressional district gets that electoral vote. And then what do you do with the Senate, the two Senate votes? You could give them to the winner of the popular vote to try to, just as a, as a bonus. <laughs> well, if that had happened, if we had a proportional plan, we'd be talking about President Nixon, but eight years earlier. Nixon would have narrowly defeated. And so what I, what I have here, the electoral vote totals, um, P1 is the pro proportional by uh, population, PD is proportional by a congressional district, um, and then the, the last column is direct election, this is their, their share of the popular vote. So proportional allocation of the electoral vote sounds great, but it could actually reverse the result. But wait, there's more. Mitt Romney would have won. Uh, so, uh, and uh, so, so, like, oh shoot! <laughs> I, th I thought we'd fixed. I thought we'd fixed that problem. Uh, now, one of the reasons I chose this topic for this event was this is a a Virginia relevant topic because several times in the last few years, the Virginia Assembly has voted on bills to allocate its electoral votes proportionally with the district plan. The, they, they've either been vetoed by the governor or um, haven't passed, but the motivation is partisan. I think it's, it's safe to say that is we could have stopped 
Barack Obama. We could, if we had done this, and Nate Silver from the, the New York Times 538 um, site estimated that if five or six states had done this, you wouldn't need the whole nation to do it, but just five or six carefully chosen states. McCain would have won, Romney would have won. And so they're thinking, uh, and this also, um, the Silver would think, well, what if Democratic states did this? It wouldn't balance out with this. Uh, so, so for some complicated reasons. Um, now, you have to think, though, um, you would only propose the proportional plan if you are the minority party in the presidential vote. Because if you're the majority party, you like the winner-take-all system. But if you change this, then what if the party, if the vote goes the other way? So it's like, oh shoot. Uh, so this is a, a Virginia thing. Now, Virginia has also earlier this year um, defeated a bill to change to the national popular vote plan, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, none of these have passed in, uh, in, into law. But if the Virginia General Assembly goes Democratic next year, and it, and it might, the national popular vote plan will come up for a vote again, and um, Virginia could change. So this is, this is not some abstract, goofy political science. This is front page news. Last one I'm going to mention tonight is the, it's called the National Popular Vote Plan. It's normally described as an interstate compact. The Constitution doesn't tell states how to choose their electors. They can do it any way they want. So this has the advantage it wouldn't require a constitutional amendment to change. But it would be an interstate compact where states would pass a law pledging that its electors will vote for the popular vote winner. So just imagine 2016. We know who won the popular vote. The states agree in advance we're going to require our electors to vote for Hillary Clinton across the board. The idea is it would only take effect when states, a certain number of states agree. That is, uh, the total of states that have signed this produce 270 electoral votes. That is the number you need to win. I believe this is right that there are 12 states uh, currently uh, these are, I think, well, yes, no Republican states so far, might come up in Virginia, wouldn't require a constitutional amendment. However, it would be subject to challenges in court. The Constitution has some rules about interstate compacts, like you can't do them uh, without <laughs> the approval of Congress. Now, you might call it something else, but th there uh, the, the proponents of this are really adamant, like, no, 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 no. But, but uh, th there would certainly be litigation. Um, 
it's possible it would run afoul of the Voting Rights Act if it's seen by a court as diminishing the power of minority votes. Again, with the Electoral College, and this is kind of where I started with, we say, oh, it's unfair here, it's become a partisan thing, but if you went back 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, you would say no, the Electoral College is a vital part of the enfranchisement of black voters. It's vital to this, and so it's one of those things where um, people aren't always consistent in the, the, the it's tempting to simply dis, to decide this as a, on a strategic basis. Like, what's gonna help my side? But as I hope you've seen tonight, it's a kind of slippery thing. And that's how politics works. What goes around comes around. And it could help me this time, but hurt me next time. Okay, um, before I get to questions and comments, I have a few thank yous. These um, events always come with long list of thank yous. Um, I hope you get that this is truly heartfelt. Um, I'm so grateful to the Notre Dame Club of Richmond for inviting me. This is a really big deal for me. Um, I'm grateful to the University of Richmond Department of Political Science, the John Marshall Center, to Professor Palazzo, to Professor Cherry, um, who I, sh I should have mentioned uh, uh, up there, uh, to help make this possible. Catherine Rockwell was very patient with me, uh, and she's a lot more organized than I normally am. Um, she was a really big help to me. I'm grateful to you for sharing your time with me. I'm not gonna read the next one. Um, but it's there. But I have to mention um, Brittany Dunperio for contacting me last spring and say, hey, I have an idea. And she's worked so hard uh, to make this happen. Um, my current students are very important to me. I work with lots and lots of students as a teacher and advisor. But um, my former students are the best. Um, so uh, with that, th thank you very much. So now we're back for questions and comments. Yes, please. Um, the um, writers of the Federal Federalist Papers warn about the tyranny of the majority. And, and I have thought of the Electoral College as a safeguard against that, similar to the House and the Senate. Yep. And you even mentioned, if I in interpreted what you said correctly, that, um, that the Electoral College avoided disenfranchisement of African-American voters during the Civil Rights era. So, <clears throat> again, these are my impressions that I have, have said, which follow on from the uh, Federalist Papers. How correct am I in that? And if I'm not, you know, can you clarify? Uh, for, 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 so, it's, so it's yes and no. Um, uh, get an A minus. 
So the uh, little bit of grade inflation, so probably should be a B plus, but, but we'll, you, you, you tr you're trying hard. So um, the, the phrase tyranny of the majority comes from Alexis de Tocqueville uh, l later on. It's not uh, a, a Federalist Papers phrase. However, they do, the Federalist Papers talk about tyrants. And the idea is that behind the electoral college, and again, if you read this part of the Constitution and the 12th Amendment, the writing is very difficult. It's just difficult to understand. And um, you know, forgive me saying this here in Virginia, um, uh, but I don't think they quite thought this out thoroughly with the Electoral College, and it certainly hasn't worked the way they, it seems like it was set up to work. But the language in the Federalist Papers, is, this is a check on democracy. Constitution has any number of checks on democracy. Um, we don't vote for Supreme Court justices, et, et, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the idea was, imagine where the people elect someone, they've been duped, they elect someone who's clearly unfit for office. The, now, now, the, uh, the, the uh, electoral college, the idea, it would step in. Um, senators were originally elected not by the people, it took a constitutional amendment in the early uh, 20th century to do that, but by a legislative caucus, party leaders um, in, in the state. Um, but, but so you're right, the argument in the Federalist Papers is it's there to prevent the people, if the, it's just to reverse if the people make a bad choice, because people can be duped, they can be bought off, and so you have uh, a group of leaders who are in a position to, well, let's just think about this and correct what they see as a mistake. Now, so that's, that's you're, you're quite right. That is uh, the, the basic argument. Would, would you agree, Kevin? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, yeah, question here. Yeah. I think you laid out very carefully and apolitically the complex system and yeah. process yeah. of electing the President of the United States. Yeah. We know there's no system, regardless of whatever system you're going to create, is going to be a perfect system. Correct. The impetus, at least to me, has begun when Al Gore sure. won the popular vote and, of course, lost the election. Right. Then it was compounded tenfold thousandfold yes, right. when Donald Trump, who is by many people despised, and I think the impetus to changing this system is to, as a result of these two individuals winning, yeah. losing the popular vote. Now, historically, other than these two, has the system been relatively fair? <coughs> there's such a word as fair. Yeah. Um, there have been, beside those two, 
There have been three other elections where uh, the, the winner of the popular vote didn't win the electoral vote. All of them were complicated. Um, 1824, you had uh, uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay, and yeah, there's a, anyway, so there, there was, Crawford, thank you very much. Thank, uh, you get an A. So, uh, uh, that was complicated. Um, Clay threw his support to, to Adams. Is that a disaster? Is that unfair? No. Jackson thought so. He got his revenge next time. He called it the corrupt bargain, the corrupt deal. Um, in the 1877, um, by the way, what year did Reconstruction end? And I just gave you a hint. Because <laughs> the two things go together. Imagine an election where there are ballots in Florida that are unreadable because they've gotten wet. And so there were, the election didn't produce a winner. It went to the House. And what happened in the House was uh, Southern Democrats said, and this is typical of Southern political strategy, they said, Republicans, we'll let you win. All we want in return is this one little thing. Get out of the South. Get those troops out of the South. So that's why we can give, that was the date of the end of Reconstruction. Uh, and so, um, so, were those unfair, were those anomalies? And that's why I said, would those problems be better or worse than the potential problems with the others? That's kind of what, what again, that's why I say it's the devil you know, and you set it up just right. No system is neutral. All systems and procedures have biases, consequences, and um, as you th think through the proposals, um, you might want to say, look, if you, were, if you were of a certain mind, you'd say the last two Republican presidents <coughs> uh, lost the popular vote. Uh, and so this becomes an issue for Democrats. But again, what goes around, comes around, this could work. Uh, and um, uh, this will just take a second. I know it sounds strange because we think the winner of the popular vote should win, but when I teach this in class, I have a, use a, a baseball um, scoreboard, like nine innings, whoever gets the most votes wins. Well, what if we scored baseball differently? Whoever wins the most innings wins. Be very different. It would, because your strategy would be you tell your relief pitcher, and the team would probably have 20 relief pitchers, short relief pitchers, you'd say, we need one inning. We need one 
inning. Well, you think, okay, that, that's really goofy, but that's how tennis is scored. You can, you can get fewer points, you can get fewer games, and still win, because it's whoever, it's not whoever wins the most points, it's whoever wins the most sets. I've never heard anybody say, that's unfair. I've never heard any tennis player say, I should have won, I won more points, because coach would say, well, you didn't win the ones that mattered. Uh, and so there's nothing necessarily unfair about it. Um, I know that sounds like a funny thing to say. But the, other questions? How about gerrymandering? Gerrymandering, okay, gerrymandering is, is relevant to this because of the, the congressional district proportional plan. Because if the idea is we want to divide up the electoral votes in proportion to the popular vote, and we do it by congressional district, you follow me? Gerrymandering, if it was, if you had, let's say, I had 100,000 voters in, in each, and you get five congressmen, 20,000 congressmen yeah. per congressman, and you divide that state up equally, north and south, or right. east and west, right. and each, uh, <clears throat> to get your five congressmen, there will be a smaller slice of pie in some places of the state, smaller areas mm. and larger areas, but it will still be more equally uh, balanced from the people in the state to vote to their conscience right. than having a gerrymandered state. Yeah, so your, your point is that it would be kind of more random than deliberately rigged by the majority party to leverage uh, representation by the majority party. Now, one problem, if I've understood you right, um, let, let, let me talk about Indiana, just because <laughs> it's, it's more symmetrical, the, the, the state. Um, well, in this state, it'd be more let's, like a Let's say you just divided it up on a grid you have very large areas in Indiana that are rural, that just hardly have any people. Do you want to give this, you, what you'd have is inequalities in population, but with an equal number of representatives. That is very true, but the yeah. thing is, that each, if you do it in an equal stripes or uh -huh. an equal way, that way mean people across the state will vote to their conscience not to a small gerrymandering uh, uh, area, yeah. but, well, where it came from, Massachusetts, where it went around the state from gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, in one of your early slides, you showed a, a list of the uh, so-called um, yeah. states, the uh, key states. Right, the swing states. Swing states, including yeah. a couple of smaller states, Iowa and Wisconsin. Right. If you did away with the electoral college system, right. 
why would any, ca any candidate campaign in a state like Iowa or Wisconsin? Because they don't have the votes of a California where you can campaign along the coast and, and get just gobs of votes. New York where you can campaign in that area, get gobs of votes. Uh, and and would, would, the, uh, would those areas basically be um, just abandoned in presidential elections? Yeah, that, that's one of the fears if we went to direct election. Um, uh, and we know that there's uh, a big rural-urban divide now. And this is one of the uh, arguments that made in defense of the Electoral College. Um, again, this is Moneyball. I, I don't know, but I'm sure there are people who do this for a living who are th wondering, can I get a majority by appealing to rural voters? Now, this is how it would work, though. It's not, okay, I'm going to talk about the stuff that rural voters are interested in and ignore the city, the cities. The key to that strategy would be, like, can I come up with something that would appeal to, urban, to rural voters and get some urban voters, too? So uh, I mentioned George Wallace. George Wallace ran for president at a time when country music was going from regional audiences to national mass marketing. And Wallace at one point, when I lived in Chicago in the, the mid-70s, there were two radio stations in Chicago that played country music 24 hours a day. And uh, I could tell you a whole lot about the history of country music because I listened to those stations every day. George Wallace said, the people who listen to country music are going to elect me president. That is, his insight was, there, what works for me in the South will also work for me in the North. And so, the, there, I'm sure there are ways where someone could come up with, I'm going to win rural voters, but I'm also going to win some uh, uh, urban voters, too. Um, Let's say, you know, hypothetically, what if I made abortion one of my issues? Like, whoa, 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 all of a sudden, we're not talking about... Re so there could be a combination of issues that would appeal uh, to both. And that's, that's how politics works. But, but I understand what you're saying. The idea... Now, now, you have to remember what I said about Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez. Are we talking about affirmative action for rural voters? That is, those poor rural voters, uh, they need help because there just aren't enough of them. Why should, there aren't enough of them. Isn't that why we have elections? Uh, but, but again, I think the way it would play out is that someone's putting together a strategy that would, I'm picking up votes here, I'm picking up votes there. Also, um, the way candidates run for president, like, geez, is it worth my while to go to Wisconsin? Is it worth my while? The concept of swing states wouldn't mean as much, certainly. But 
because things are televised and, uh, I mean, televised, that shows how old I am. It's like, tel uh, but because you can distribute stuff on the internet, it doesn't exactly matter where you campaign because you can give a speech and uh, draw on it elsewhere. Um, but that's, um, yeah, that, that, that's one of the concerns about, uh, about uh, direct election. Would, would candidates ignore large parts of the population? But again, politicians are, are, are creative, and they will find ways to put together coalitions that wouldn't have uh, occurred to, to ordinary people. How do you, how do you get, I'm a candidate, I want to appeal to poor people, and I want to appeal to rich people. There are ways to do that. I want to, so that's, that's the art of being a politician. Uh, um, so understand, like, and, and a lot of things what we've been discussing this evening is about uh, the questions of how we elect presidents and what the outcome of any given election, any given system will produce. Um, I'm curious if you could speak at all, though, to the other side of it, which is the voters' participation in that process right. and our confidence in the outcome, um, given that, I mean, I'm a millennial, so two of the elections that have taken place in my lifetime have failed to produce a popular vote right. winner that won the election. You're starting to get suspicious. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, uh, one, of the, one of the benefits of a direct election uh, would be fewer people, it would certainly raise turnout, because if you're in California, why, why vote? Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, why vote? You know what the outcome is gonna be. Um, you're in South Carolina, why bother? You know what the vote, what the outcome is gonna be. But with direct election, every vote would, would matter. Uh, and that would be, um, you, you're, you're quite right. You know, I'm talking about procedures and this or that. This is the heart of American politics. And um, the idea that there are generations who are cynical, who feel like, What's the point? My vote doesn't matter. I'm seeing the, the outcome. That's a, that's a problem. That, that's really a problem. And so, and, and you're quite right to bring it up. Um, a lot of this is not, oh, it's more, it's like restoring credibility to, 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 to elections. And that involves uh, a number of things. But you're quite right to bring that up. Okay, now, here's where. Okay. Professor, yeah, I've, uh, I've got we're, a, we're sort of out of time. He's going to take my battery no, out and put me back in the box. No, yeah. seriously. Um, Professor Kaplan will hang around a little bit if other people have questions. We're at the 8 o'clock uh, hour. And I can just tell from the response mm -hmm. that if you were to run for office. <laughs> <laughs> What's the title of my talk? Direct popular vote. Be careful what you, what you wish for. You got to uh, go. You got to so go. Direct popular vote. Yeah. No, no electoral college. Okay, yeah. so you, you'll so, be elected. You. But we, you, you gave a lot of thank yous. We want to we thank you for coming you're, here you're, today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.